Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. There's an ancient Jewish legend about two brothers who lived on farms right next door to each other. Uh, One of the brothers was about my age, mid-30s, had a wife, had a few kids, a couple sons, and he lived on one side. And there was a younger brother, probably about 15 years younger, early 20s, late teens, just kind of getting started out, who lived on a farm uh, just next door. And these brothers loved each other very much. They were God-fearers. They worshiped God. They took care of things. They were good men. And about the same time, um, one of, they both had similar thoughts. The older brother was looking over at his younger brother, and he thought to himself, man, he has nobody to take care of him if something goes wrong. If something happens to me, I have a strong wife. I've got a couple of young boys. got a big family. We're going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. I'm fine. And so he started every night this daily habit of he would go to his grain bins. He would fill up a big, huge bag of grain, much as he could carry. He would carry it over to his brother's farm, and he would dump the, farm in, uh, the grain in his bins, and he'd go to bed. Now, about that same time, the younger brother is looking over at his older brother, and he's thinking, he's got so much to take care of, so much responsibility. It's me. I'm fine. It's just me. If something happens to me, it's no big deal. If something happens to him, what about his wife? What about his kids? And so he started the daily habit of going to his grain bins, getting a bag full of grain, much as he could carry, carrying it over to his brother's grain bin and dumping it out. They did this for weeks, months. I mean, they just kept doing this every night, not aware of what the other was doing. They kind of noticed that they weren't really losing grain, but they just chalked it up to God's provision, thanked him, and went about their business. Now, one night, as they were doing this, the older brother did it a little bit later than normal, the younger brother a little bit earlier than normal, and when it was dark outside, both of them each went to their own grain bins, filled up a bag, came across the path between the two farms, and they came face-to-face with each other. It was dark, but they could see each other, they could see the bags, they realized what was going on, they dropped their bags, and they embraced. Now, according to the legend, God looked down in this moment and said, on this spot where these two brothers manifest such love, I will build my temple, because my presence is most clearly manifest where people take care of each other in my name. Now, I love that legend. I don't think it's a historically accurate story. Nobody really does. But it, of course, shows us a very important truth, that God's presence is most clearly shown where people take care of one another in his name. And that's the truth that we're going to be talking about today. Put a little bit differently, we can't enjoy peace with God without pursuing peace with other people. If we want to be people who enjoy this reconciled relationship that God has made available to us, we also will be people who pursue reconciliation all around us. Open up your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be camping out today in kind of the middle section of Matthew 5. We're going to be in Matthew 5 for a while. Today we're just looking at a few verses there in the 20s. And all of the verses that we're unpacking today are words straight out of Jesus' mouth. They're red letters, so to speak. And I love this because it's a good reminder for us of what we're doing when we gather here in this kind of setting. It's a good reminder for me of what my job is. And this is something that Jesus has been kind of reminding me of a lot lately is that the the simple task of a person who stands up in front of a room like this to preach or to teach about the Bible is simply to guide your attention to the voice of Jesus. That's it. That's my job. It's not to replace his words with mine or to let my voice get in the way of his, but to enhance his with mine and to say things that will enable all of you, all of us, to look at him and listen. He's been reminding me that he has an ongoing work in each of our lives, that he's been moving in your life in ways that I have no idea about, and my simple job is to sort of push you in the direction of that work and to let him do his thing. Now, I, I got to be perfectly honest with you, I do have a fear that 
No voice in our world is more consistently ignored than Jesus's. And maybe that's a little bit dramatic, but I don't think by much that no voice in our world is more consistently not listened to than his. And I fear that among the worst culprits are us, followers of Jesus, Christians, people who say yes to Jesus, but then I fear sometimes don't pay attention to what he said. Now, again, I hope this isn't dramatic, but as I've been reading through the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, I can't escape this question, this question of do the things that Jesus is telling us to do match the things that we actually routinely do on a daily basis? And sometimes I don't like the answer. Now, I'm not trying to be harsh toward, toward you or anybody who's not in the room. I hope I'm not being too harsh. If I am, forgive me. But I'm haunted by this, this recognition of the gap sometimes. And I'm also haunted by this old statement I heard from G.K. Chesterton, who said that Christianity or the Christian ideal is not so much found, uh, like tried and found wanting as much as it is found difficult and left untried. It's not really that we've looked at the teachings of Jesus and we've said like, hey, uh, I'm going to give this a shot and we live it out completely and then we discover it doesn't work. It's more that we look at the teachings of Jesus and say, man, that looks like a great idea for, for someone else and we leave it untried. And we've been trying to remedy this situation as a church, as a community, as best we can, one small step at a time by looking at Jesus as our teacher, by examining the fact that he's not just our savior, our Lord, our friend, he's our teacher. He's the one who gives us instructions that we actually follow throughout the course of our lives. And we've been doing this by studying the Sermon on the Mount, this, this, this famous sermon from the life of Jesus that starts in Matthew 5. And we've only made it a little ways, but we've seen quite a bit already. We talked about the first section in Matthew 5, what are often called the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, blessed are these people, blessed are those, blessed are you when, and we uh, had a conversation about how what Jesus is doing here is not giving us a checklist of things we have to do in order to be okay with him, but more so he's painting a picture of this deeply satisfying life that he makes available in his kingdom. It's an invitation to all people, small and great, bad and good, to become a part of his kingdom, to receive this invitation to an unconventional way of doing things, out of the kingdom of the now and into the new way that Jesus is laying out for us. Then last week, we talked about how after laying out this picture of a deeply satisfying life, he calls us to live inside out loud, to live out loud, to be the light of the world, to be people whose lives show the world what God is like so that we can live in certain ways and other people can look at the way we live outwardly, externally, our behavior and say, man, there's something different. There must be a God behind this because otherwise how do you explain what I'm seeing when I look at this person's life, to live out loud. But then he goes on to say that we do so not by trying really hard to set a good example, but by letting him do a work within us inside out loud. So that he changes our hearts, so that we become people who actually live up to God's idea. We become people who are transformed by grace and his power in our lives so that we live in such ways that draw attention not to ourselves but to him. And in this section where we were talking about looking at what Jesus says and how he fulfills the law, he doesn't reject the law. He ends it with this like huge bomb where he says, hey, I tell you what, if your righteousness your lifestyle that pleases God, if your righteousness does not surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the most revered, Bible-knowledgeable, rule-following people in their world, if your righteousness does not surpass theirs, then you have no place in this kingdom. Wow. And the first specific teaching that he gives after making this grand statement is Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. And that's what I'm going to look at together with you today. So let's, uh, let's give it a read and then uh, see if we can't talk about this in such a way that helps us obey it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. Short section, a lot packed in here. Here, here it is. 
Uh, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago. This is Jesus talking. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, is in danger of the fire of hell. He gives some examples. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. He gives a second example, verse 25. So settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taken you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Murder, anger, not particularly fun subjects to talk about, how we treat each other when things aren't exactly going smoothly in our relationships, but man, what a great place to start. I don't know if anything exposes our failure to be the light of the world as much as the fact that sometimes attack mode comes more natural to us than the way of forgiveness and peace. Even when we're working with brothers and sisters, people of our same faith. Makes me think about, uh, makes me think about the African nation of Rwanda in the last century. You know, for most of the last century, Rwanda was held up as the success, most successful story of Christian missions we've ever known. Like in the early 1900s, some missionaries came and brought the gospel to Rwanda and preached about Jesus. And a lot of people came to faith. People at the lower levels of society, people at the higher levels of society. And it got to a point where over 90% of the citizens in this nation, Rwanda, said, I am a follower of Jesus. I am a Christian. They identified as a follower of Jesus, publicly and openly. And yet in the mid-90s, you remember what happened. If you don't remember the news, you remember the movie that was made about it. All of a sudden, you have these tensions that had been building and rising between these two groups, these two ethnic groups who are trying to live at peace, and these tensions between them rise to such a point that they started massacring each other. I mean, people grabbing machetes, taking down women and children, people who they used to be their co-workers, people who used to be their neighbors, people who also say they're Christians, Christians killing Christians in the name of previous allegiances. And I don't want to minimize, I don't want to minimize the complexity of situations like this. There's a lot going on. But part of what's going on is apparently their faith, their Christianity, didn't have a good enough place for Matthew 5, 21 to 26, because that is not what this is describing. More close to home, you know what what scares me or makes me sad is when I hear or think about somebody who lives in our community, lives on our street, lives in our neighborhoods, not a person who knows Jesus, not a person who follows Jesus, not a person who who believes in what we believe in. It scares me to think about somebody saying, yeah, you know, like my neighbors over here are Christians and... My neighbors over there are Christians, but man, they do not treat each other like brothers and sisters. Do not want to get in the middle of that. Man, we need this text. We need to understand what Jesus is saying. We need to know how to live it out so that we can be the kind of people he's calling us to be, the kind of people he's inviting us to be. All that to say what we're talking about here is important. And I think this text is actually pretty simple. I see three basic truths and then one clear call, one clear response of obedience that we're going to work through. So let's get to work. First thing I think Jesus clearly says here is that not murdering is not enough. Okay? Not, not, not killing people unjustly. Maybe a good start, but it's not enough. So we're talking about this sixth commandment from the big ten commandments. Do not murder. And Jesus says, you've heard that it was said... Uh, Do not murder. And anybody who murders is subject to judgment. But he says, but I tell you, anybody who's angry with a brother or sister, subject to judgment. If you call someone raka, you're going to the court. You call someone fool, you're in danger of hell. And he amps it up a bit. 
So he's not so much critiquing the Old Testament law at all, actually. He's more critiquing the view at the time, the traditional view at Jesus' time is the law says don't murder. So if you break this law, if you break this rule, then you're going to be in trouble with God. He will judge you. But if you keep this law, if you follow it, then you and God will be at peace. Again, the law, pretty clear, says you can't just eliminate someone or remove someone from the world because it would make your life easier or because they owed you something they didn't pay or because you want something and they stopped you from getting it. It doesn't work that way. If you avoid murder, if you don't do that, if you don't kill them, you're righteous. You and God are good. And we might look at this and think, yeah, like, duh. <laughs> like, who doesn't get this? Who doesn't understand? It seems like kind of a baseline. It seems like a low common denominator. You know what I mean? But, but don't, don't, don't jump too quickly to that. Like imagine if there was a city that had a murder rate, a homicide rate of zero. Like no murders. Imagine if there was an actual place where literally no one ever killed anyone. Not just like less than Chicago, but zero, okay? Nobody ever killed anyone. Wouldn't you want to go there? Wouldn't you want to live? Like wouldn't you feel safer there? Wouldn't it be a nice place to raise your kids? I'd imagine if there was ever a city that had a homicide rate of zero where everybody followed the rule of do not murder, I bet you somebody would stand up and say, this is heaven on earth. I mean, who wouldn't want to live in a place like this? And yet I think Jesus would disagree, or at least he'd be skeptical. I think Jesus would say, I I don't have enough information to know whether they're living out the life of heaven on earth. I need to know a little bit more. Tell me how people think about each other. Tell me how people feel toward one another. Tell me how people speak to each other. And then I'll tell you whether we're looking at the life of heaven here on earth. He says, but I say unto you, and he gives a little bit of a reality check here. But I say unto you, not merely, it's not enough merely to avoid killing the people you want out of your way. Because God's judgment in this command, God's judgment is not just on the act of murder. It's on the attitude standing behind it. The attitude expressed in it. An attitude of contempt that is matched, by the way, whenever we wish someone dead or, or you know, put someone in the loser category in our minds. An attitude that is matched when we speak words that basically put people on a lower level of humanity than ourselves so that we can remove them from the equation and no longer consider them somebody worthy of my attention. Since whenever you're angry, speaking evil, I don't think he's talking about three different situations, by the way, anger, rock off, fool. I think it's the same whole complex. He's describing what happens. And I do think it's important to note the details here. He doesn't say when you get angry. He says someone who is angry. There's a difference. Like nobody can not get angry. You live in a broken world. Stuff's going to happen. It's frustrating. You're going to get angry. It's going to happen. You find yourself angry. I think Jesus, when he uses actually the verb he uses for is angry, is a description of when anger comes on you and you let it stay there. Harboring anger. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about what you do when you reach that point where you're frustrated with someone. Where do we go from here? Okay, so you're offended. Somebody got in your way. Somebody didn't give you what you thought they owed you. Now where do we go? This is where Jesus starts to draw a connection between murder and anger. A connection made pretty clear here in this text. We want something. Also, if you want another one, look at James 4 later. A place where I think Jesus' brother actually applies this teaching to some other situations. We want something. Somebody gets in our way of getting it, so we remove them so we can get what we want, whatever it may be. Better life or money, whatever it may be. I'm going to take you out like I remove whoever stands between me and what I want. Anger is what we feel toward people who get in our way. Now, we won't, well, we don't usually like go all the way and actually remove people from the world. The seeds of this behavior are present when we harbor resentment, when we hold on to bitterness and rage and contempt for people. We wish that they would just be gone. 
We express this usually by words, by what we say to them or about them. Jesus says you call someone raka. Raka was a word, um, means uh, like blockhead, empty head, fool, idiot, dummy. Idiot's probably a good translation, moron. You call this is just an idiot. I work with this lady. She has a problem with me, but she's just an idiot. You should see this guy. He was, what an idiot. He's just, don't even worry about it. He's just a, just a dummy, just a fool. Fool is a similar word, almost the same. Maybe has a little bit of a sense of like bad person or immoral. She's just a bad dude. Don't even worry about what he thinks. Don't even worry about her. She's just a bad, bad person. Recognize like when you put somebody in the idiot box or in the bad person box, you no longer have to regard them as someone with whom you'll try to live at peace. You just kind of decide in your heart, you put them in this, you say with your words, you, you cut them down to size so that they no longer become, like they're no longer somebody who will receive love and respect and effort from you to live with them well. Yeah, yeah, Jesus is right. The heart condition that renders murder worthy of judgment is present in harbored anger and contempt and words meant to cut people down. So first thing Jesus says is not murdering. Man, it's a great place to start, but it's not enough. Again, Jesus isn't disagreeing with the law. He's showing the law's intent. He's showing what the law was going for all along. Somebody once said, um, this is helpful for me. Somebody once said that the law is like a flower bud and Jesus comes to show what the flower looks like in full bloom. The law was always, do not murder was always designed to turn us into people who, who, who reject anger. So not murdering is not enough. That's the first part. What do we do in place of it? Here's the second part. Instead of harboring anger, pursue peace. Instead of harboring on anger and holding on to it, pursue peace. Then Jesus gets to, gets to some action. He says, therefore, here's what you should do. And he gives us a couple of examples. They're in the back half of this text. First one he says is, if you're at the altar, so picture this, you're, you're in an act of worship. Like what's more important than worship, right? You have made your way to Jerusalem and you've stood in line and you've gotten to the altar where God's presence is most clearly manifest and God is there and you're worshiping him. When you're about to offer your gift at the altar, Jesus says, and you think about the fact that somebody has something against you, leave your gift right there. Go be reconciled to that person. Go try to have a conversation and make it right and then come back to offer your gift. That's crazy. Imagine you wait in a line for like three hours, right? I don't know how long it would have been, but it would have been about that long. You wait in line for that long, and you're finally there, and you're like, okay, here's, oh, man, you know what? I forgot, like, yeah, that person kind of has a problem with me. It kind of comes to your head, and you think, ah, it's their problem, you know? I think Jesus, by the way, I think he says when somebody has a problem with you, not because it doesn't matter when we have a problem with someone, but because we're going to tend to, like, write it off if it's just somebody having a problem with us. I got a problem with me, but that's their problem. I'm fine. Jesus says, no, you're not fine, at least not according to me. So leave it there, go make it right, come back. Not to mention the fact they're in Galilee. Like picture the land of Israel, right? Jerusalem's down here in the south. They're up in Galilee, the north, which is where Jesus and all of his followers lived and where they are when he's saying these words, at least 80 miles away. So we're talking about a four or five day journey. You made a five day journey to Jerusalem, stood in line for hours, you're there at the altar, so go back, five days back, have the conversation, hopefully it goes well, come back five more days, stand in line again, then offer your gift. That, again, is crazy. And Jesus is saying, you need to understand something. I'm not messing around with this because worship is compromised where reconciliation is not pursued because you can't enjoy peace with God and not pursue peace with other people. Picture the cross. It's a great just picture of this, where you have this vertical beam, right? Like we're reconciled to God. That's the main thing happening when Jesus comes. But you also have this horizontal, which could serve as an illustration for us of the call to pursue peace, not just up, but out as well. 
Can't enjoy peace with God without pursuing peace with other people. So that's the first example. Second example is um, a little bit different. In some ways, a little more intense. So like you're on the way to court with somebody. They're taking you to court. So this is serious. They, they mean business. They plan on suing you, putting you in prison. Jesus is like, listen, try to make peace now. Don't wait till later because it might be a poor verdict. It might be a bad verdict. And then you're going you're gonna to get stuck in there. And you're going to pay, pay, pay the very last penny. The coin he says, you won't get out until you pay the last penny. It's the second smallest coin in their world. It was worth, at that point, probably like seven minutes of work in an eight-hour day. It's worth nothing. He says, you're going to have to pay the whole thing. Because where reconciliation is not won, where peace is not won, the full penalty will be paid. So he says, be a person that pursues this. Now, I don't know that Jesus is, he's not trying to be exhaustive. He's just given a couple examples. And I think he's given these examples because he knows we're going to try to weasel our way out of it. Well, maybe not in this situation. So Jesus just cuts it off. He says, is it a friend, brother, sister, or an enemy? Both. So let's say there's somebody who isn't really dealing with the, you know, there's something against you, you know, there's a conflict, but nobody's really talking about it. Or if it's like an open thing where they're coming at you, both. You get the point? Jesus is saying, always pursue peace, pursue peace, pursue peace. The instruction is not never be angry. The instruction is pursue peace in all your relationships. The Pharisees were content with don't murder, don't kill anybody. Jesus says, no, that's not enough. Be a peace pursuer. Look at the commands in this text. Leave, go, be reconciled, make friends quickly. And I want you to think about this for a minute because we might expect him to say, instead of harboring anger, never be angry. Wouldn't that make sense? That's kind of what I expect him to say. Instead of harboring anger, never be angry. That would seem to follow as an instruction where you're trying to replace anger. Instead of never be angry, instead of being angry, never be angry. But he, he doesn't say that. Why? Because he's brilliant. Because Jesus knows that telling people who get angry, stop getting angry, is kind of like saying, don't think about a pink elephant, right? Like it never works. If you're paying attention to me, you're thinking about a pink elephant right now, you know? Now, does Jesus want to call us out of our anger? Of course he does. That's exactly what he's trying to do here. But the path he lays out is the pursuit of peace. Man, I think Jesus is so wise. Surprise, surprise, I guess. He totally cuts off paralysis by analysis. It took me an embarrassing amount of time this week to figure out what Jesus is doing here. I mean, I probably spent, I spent hours trying to like, okay, I got to have a good theology of anger. I got to know when is anger okay and when is it not and what's the line and what are all the scenarios and questions. I tried, I'm, I'm over here trying to like dot all the I's and cross all the T's and Jesus is in the corner going, hey, remember that person with whom you have a conflict that needs some attention? Yeah, start there. And I think we live in a, in an age and we're kind of a culture that's pretty educated psychologically. If we've not, we may not have read Freud, but we know who he is, you know? So we're fairly psychological in our thinking about things. And so I think maybe because of this, our tendency is to analyze our anger. Well, why are you angry? Let's peel back the layers and kind of talk through all the seeds and roots of this various things. And hear me well, I think that this is a very important part of the process at certain points. Like it's wise. It's good. I think even the scriptures point us in the direction of such discernment and reflection at times. But here, Jesus cuts to the quick, says, pursue peace. Let's get right to it. All that analysis means nothing unless you are a pursuer of peace. This is not the last word that Jesus and the apostles will have to say about anger, but it is the first word. Pursue peace. Do you want to be the kind of person who's transformed at your core so that you live out what God had in mind when he said, do not murder? Do you? Then here's where to start. Who has beef with you? Go do what you can to make it right. <laughs> it says, it's, that's what he says. Clear as day. 
Go make it, go do what you can to make it right. And I would imagine, I mean, I can't read your minds. I would imagine that at least some of you, when you hear this Jesus saying like, here's what to do, go have the conversation. Go have the difficult conversation where you say, I don't think we're good. I think maybe I did something to hurt you or you did something to make me a little angry. At that point, when Jesus is like, go have these conversations, my question is, okay, but what am I supposed to do, Jesus? What do you want me to say? Like, what approach am I supposed to take? I don't know about you, but for me, when I get told this, I think about all the times I've tried and failed. Anybody else? Anybody else, when Jesus says this, you're like, yeah, I tried that once, and it did not go well. And the person is sitting right next to me still. You know, like those kind of things where you're like, it just is, I don't know what to do, man. And I'll be, I, hey, I went to bat for y'all on this, for all of us. I wrestled with Jesus this week. I was like, Jesus, why don't you tell us how to do it, please? And as I'm pushing back on him, as I'm working through this, he kind of, he kind of called my bluff. He said, you really think that would make you do it? No. I mean, how many times, I don't know, have you heard, you watched a show or you read an article or you read a book or you heard a message or a sermon or a teaching about, here's how to deal with your conflict, right? Here's the formula to do it. Do those help? Not usually. I mean, they're not bad, but they don't turn us into peace pursuers if we're not already peace pursuers. Usually the advice is so general that it's like obvious. Well, go in humble. Yeah, thanks. I know. Okay. Don't yell. Okay, cool. Anything else? You know, what am I supposed to say? And every time they say, well, here's what you say. Okay. Like that's not very helpful or that's great. I should do that someday. And that's the end of it. So maybe Jesus doesn't tell us how because he knows that how is not the obstacle that we sometimes think it is. Maybe the reality is that we learn by trying, yeah, and failing, and then trying again and again and again. And I'm not saying there's no good strategy for these conversations. Of course, there are certain things you should do, certain things you shouldn't. But I am increasingly convinced of the wisdom of what Jesus does right here. He says, start with this, do something. Go get it, go pursue it, start the conversation. If it makes you feel any better, and it does make me feel better, The Bible's pretty consistent about how this is not going to be something that's easy, and there's going to be a lot of other things we're going to want to do. Look at some of the statements where the Bible talks about the pursuit of peace. Notice notice the verbs that are connected to this. Let me read a few of them for you. Hebrews 12, 14, the author of Hebrews says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. You know what the Bible never says? It never says, make every effort to eat chocolate chip cookies, Okay. You don't have to be told to make every effort to do this. The Bible never says, like, make every effort to try to take a day off every once in a while. Like, sometimes we need to hear that. For the most part, that comes somewhat naturally to us. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Peter says something similar in uh, 1 Peter 3.11. He's talking about people who love life and seek good days. And he says about them, they must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. You'd think it'd be enough that he said, seek peace, but he adds another one. He says, seek peace and, in case you missed it, pursue it. Paul, for his part, the Apostle Paul, Romans 12, 18, says, if it is possible, if it is possible, because it's not always going to work, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Romans 14, 19, let us therefore make every effort, there it is again, to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Same author, Ephesians 4, 3, says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, one more says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. The look of the next word, strive, strive for full restoration. Encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. Is it gonna be easy? No, 
But since when did whether or not something is hard answer whether or not something is good? Here's the question. I don't want to ask it, but I have to. Here's the question. Who is it for you? Who are you angry with? Who is standing in between you and what you want? Or they did so in the past and you still haven't let it go? What relationship in your life needs some attention, some urgent attention? And urgent not because like your life as a whole is messed up every day if you don't fix it. Not urgent because it's obvious to everyone. Urgent because Jesus said to do it and he said to make it a priority no matter what. Who is it for you? We'll come back to this in just a second. I gotta make this third thing. This third truth, this third point coming out of here, because it's the least obvious one. It's the one that's easiest to miss, and it might be the most important one. Third thing you see in this text, we reconcile because we are reconciled. We reconcile, we pursue peace because we are reconciled, because he's pursued peace with us. Now, here's what I missed. I'm not just being rhetorical. I'm I'm totally upfront. Here's what I missed. However many times I've read this text in my life up until this last week, I didn't realize that Jesus' examples, when he talks about somebody leaving the gift at the altar and going and making it right and they come back, when he talks about finding somebody on the way to judging you and trying to make things right there, I didn't realize that when he gives us these examples, these aren't just hypothetical situations. It's almost like he's talking about the story he is in the process of living. He's not just describing for us what we're to do toward each other. He's talking about what he will have done for us. Pursue peace. Why? Because Jesus did it first. Think about it. Leave the place of God's immediate presence so that you can go find the person who has something against you and try to make it right, after which you go back to the presence of God to worship in fullness of joy. Is that not the, does that not sound familiar? Like leave heaven, come to earth, die for sins, go back to heaven? Wow. Find the person, like the enemy who's coming at you, find them in the process of them judging you and try to make things right, paying the full penalty when reconciliation is not, is, is not received, is refused. Like haven't we heard this story before? This is the story of the gospel. Confess, I'd never seen this before, but let's not miss it for one more moment. Jesus calls us to do something here, precisely what he is in the process of doing. Look at how Paul describes Jesus' life from the back end. He says in Colossians 1, 21 and 22, he says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Man, Matthew 5, so much more than moral rules or relationship advice. This is an invitation, Matthew 5. This is an invitation and a summons to extend toward others the very same love and peace that Jesus has extended toward you and me. No wonder Jesus just said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, because when you do this, you look like him. So the obedient response is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Who is it for you? Who's the person in your life who needs some attention? Where will the pursuit of peace take you next? A question for you. How many of you, honest, like, raise hands if you would. I'm not gonna make you say anything out loud, but if you know who the person is, let me see your hand if you would. Let's just be honest with each other, yeah. Yeah, I'm not gonna do this because it's Henri, but I thought about having us all take out our phones, typing out a text message. Says, hey, we need to talk about something. When are you free? But you can do that on your own time. Just know I think Jesus would do it if he was here. And by the way, if there's like a person in your head that you're trying to get out of there, I don't want it to be this person. I'm just saying, that's probably Jesus saying this is the one that needs a little work. He doesn't guarantee success. 
He doesn't say everything will go swimmingly if you just try. He doesn't say that. No, the pursuit of peace cost him his life after all. But man, if he is who he says he is, and if we trust him as much as we say we do, then the lack of a guarantee of success doesn't matter any more than anything else that doesn't matter, right? Because we can't enjoy peace with God without pursuing peace with each other. And if this is what Jesus is telling us to do, then nothing else matters. Jesus, we need your help on this one. We've got all sorts of excuses and obstacles, reasons why we shouldn't. And, and we ask for wisdom and discernment about process and timing and all those things. But more than anything, we ask for courage and faith so that we could obey you, so that we could do what you're calling us to do. Help us to never forget that you did it first, that we're here because you did it first, because you found us when we were against you and you brought us close. Help us by your, by your power, by your spirit, by your grace to, uh, to do the same thing. Pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.